Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. If you like this podcast, you will love my new anthology called Moms Don't Have Time to Have Kids. Check it out, and you'll hear from 49 authors about all sorts of things moms don't have time to do. All the authors have been on this podcast. Also, check out my TikTok, at with Zibby and Tracy, my other podcast, Sex Talk with Zibby and Tracy. Check out Moms Don't Have Time to Write on Medium. And of course, my new publishing company called Zibby Books. And now back to our daily author interview site and a quick hello from some of my kids. Hi. Hi. Hello. Enjoy the show. Happy New Year, everyone. I hope you all had a great break. I wanted to let you know about something that I've been talking a lot about on social media at Zibby Owens, which is the hashtag 22 and 22 challenge. We are at Zibby Books. We are encouraging everybody like all of you to visit 22 bookstores in 2022. And we're going to provide a whole series of incentives for every five visits and you'll be entered to win a $500 shopping spree and you'll get fun things like bookmarks and all the rest. Plus, you'll be part of a great community of people all helping support bookstores, authors, and more. We're really, really excited about it. If you want to join, sign up. You just go to 22in22.net. That's 22in22.net and click I'm in and put your information. And then every time you go to a bookstore, you just quickly go back on the site and click log a bookstore visit. And then we'll be keeping track and we'll be following up with all of your different achievements and awards and everything. So please sign up, spread the word, 22 and 22, get your friends to join and start visiting bookstores and 
It'll be really fun and exciting. So here's to a wonderful 2022. I'm so excited that you're listening to my podcast and doing all the fun things that I have been trying to bring into the world. So here we go, 2022. Hashtag 22 in 22. Francine Prose is the author of The Vixen, a novel. Francine is the author of 21 works of fiction, including the highly acclaimed Mr. Monkey, the New York Times bestseller, Lovers at the Chameleon Club, Paris 1932, Changed Man, which won the Dayton Literary Peace Prize, and Blue Angel, which was a finalist for the National Book Award. Her works of nonfiction include the highly praised Anne Frank, the book, The Life, The Afterlife, and the New York Times bestseller, Reading Like a Writer, which has become a classic. The recipient of numerous grants and honors, including a Guggenheim and a Fulbright, a director's fellow at the Center for Scholars and Writers of the New York Public Library. Prose is a former president of Penn America Center and a member of the American Academy of Arts and Letters and the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. She is a distinguished writer in residence at Bard College. And this was part of my series at the Temple Emanuel Stryker Center, Women on the Move. Hi, Francine. Thank you you so much. I'm fine. Thank you both. Of course. Well, Francine, congratulations on The Vixen, your latest novel. You have been such a prolific author, as Marjorie said, and have done so much writing about reading and writing yourself, which I also would love to talk to you about today. But I was hoping we could start for those who are here today but haven't read The Vixen yet. If you could talk a little bit about that. And honestly, it read so much like a memoir. I kept having to flip back. I was like, is she the one who was sitting there with her parents watching the TV? I was like, did I get it wrong? Except (laughs) obviously there are some significant differences. So (laughs) yeah, I was the one sitting there with my parents watching the TV, but my main, my narrator, main character is a, is a man. So I I realized I'm not the one. Uh, Well, the novel (laughs) takes place. That first scene takes place in 1953 in June, 1953. And my hero, Simon Putnam, just graduated from Harvard, is back, having fi- having failed to figure out a plan for his future, is back with his parents in Coney Island, and they're watching the news reports of the of the execution of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, which takes place on that night of June 19th. And it's a strange scene because they're watching the reports on TV, and at the same time, all these 50s TV series are interrupting, like... I Love Lucy and the Ozzy and Harriet Nelson show and so forth. And it's complicated because, because Simon's mother was a high school friend of Ethel Rosenberg. So that so the event has a kind of personal resonance for the family in, in addition to its historical resonance. And then we fast forward about six months to September, and Simon has gotten a job through the hard work of his mother and the offices of his uncle, who's this kind of sadistic public intellectual at a very old-fashioned white shoe, excuse me, waspy publishing firm. And his first job is to read the slush pile of just unsolicited submissions that have come in. And they were sort of fun to write, you know, just <laughs> just titles for novels that would never be published by anyone everywhere. And, and, and his first assignment, his first real assignment is to edit a novel, a first novel, and he's horrified, truly horrified, to find out that it's this sleazy, lurid, bodice ripper, based, loosely based, very loosely based on the Rosenberg case, that there's a character. The novel is called The Vixen, The Patriot, and The Fanatic. And the vixen, in this case, is, is Ethel, who's been renamed Esther Rosenstein, who's this, who's this Matahari, happily a word we no longer use, nymphomaniac, who is just seducing everyone, Russian spies, American spies, American attorney generals, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a moral problem 
for Simon because on the one hand, he wants to succeed in his new chosen profession. He wants to be an editor at this fancy house. He wants to be accepted into the kind of glittering madman world of 50s publishing of three martini lunches and social status and so forth. But he knows that it's wrong to publish this book or a book like this. And it's, again, a special problem for him because of his mother's relation with Ethel Rosenberg. So so much of the novel is Simon trying to work out his own conscience, really, how he feels about success, how he feels about what he's been asked to do, how he feels about loyalty with, to his family, to the truth, what may be the truth. And then, and then kind of mixed in with that is the whole question of assimilation, because his family is, I guess his parents, although they're really nothing like my parents, are the generation of my parents, which was, much of it was about leaving their, their big working class Jewish families and becoming part of the assimilated American middle class, upper middle class. And he has to face the questions of what's lost and what's gained, in my opinion, much more is lost than is gained by this assimilation, which he's attempting at great personal cost to himself throughout the novel. And, and also that there are a number of subplots, as some dissatisfied readers have pointed out, he falls in love with every woman he meets. One of them is the putative author of The Vixen, who's this kind of odd, fey creature living in what may or may not be a mental hospital in the Hudson Valley. So, and then there are two other women. So, so again, the novel just tracks his progress from a confused young postgraduate mess to something much more spoiler stable that, that he is at the end. I thought it was so funny the way you, <laughs> you had him trying to pursue the, the job or the graduate degree he wanted next in some like completely random time. I can't even remember what it was because it was, it was so... folklore and mythology. It was folklore and mythology. But you know, I had, I mean, one of the reasons I had such great sympathy for him was that I was a medieval literature major, also at Harvard. I was a medieval literature major and it just never occurred to me that this was not the most practical major if I ever wanted to make a living. I mean, once I realized that I didn't want to go into academia, there wasn't a lot I could do with, with that. <laughs> With what I'd studied, what I'd learned. So again, but although, I mean, one of the things that made me happy writing the book was that, and I wasn't planning this in advance, but the way in which all the things that seemed to me even like kind of sidetracks or details turned out to have some actual bearing on what was happening in the plot. So so yes, his studies seemed a little goofy, let's say, but by the end, you realize that there was that the same, what do I want to say, the same dark conspiracy underneath everything else was underneath that as well. Yes. I can't know. I can't. It wasn't just the folklore. It was the one that he wanted after. It was the job he wanted after that he couldn't get. Well, anyway, whatever. I'll find. I'm convinced I will find this, but never mind. It's not even important. It's not important, but it was really funny. Anyway, yes. And I also found it so interesting. I mean, this sort of intersection of when you're watching something that is so harrowing and gruesome and emotional, and then, you know, having to put it, the juxtaposition with the shows that their family was watching was one thing, but it's also, you know, a signal to it's also sort of representative of how we bring in the news of all these horrible things into our life, right? Whether it's a show that interrupts us or if it's, you know, we're running around doing whatever and we open up the newspaper and there's some awful story and you're like, oh, and then you just have to close the newspaper and go running off to, right? Like it's the, it's the integration of this horror into regular life. I find that's fascinating. 
Yeah, no, it have it's still. I mean, for better or worse, that still happens. The way you know, some terrible, terrible catastrophe will happen, and then, and then you're not going to leave dinner burning on the stove while you watch it. So some other thing comes in. Yeah, no, a lot of that. I mean, that first scene. It wasn't. It wasn't until I figured out how to write that first scene that I realized I could write the novel. Mm. So, and that was because I'd made many, many attempts to write it before. But, but that first scene. I mean, one of the things that I wanted to happen there was that I wanted, I thought, well, this is sort of a way of signaling how much it's about families because, because although it's kind of, you know, under the surface, that first scene, there are four families going there, the the Rosenberg family, Ethel and Julius and their children, who their sons, the family in the novel, Simon and his parents, and then the, the, the Ozzy and Harriet Nelson family and Lucy and Desi, that family. So the, the, this, this just bizarro, comic, tragic interplay of these four families is going on all the way through that scene. Not to mention, then you bring in the author's family, right? Then it's your from your perspective and then the reader's perspective. So it's like this crisscrossed dance of all of the things going on. You know, I read your essay in LitHub about the importance of clarity in, in writing and that writing has to be above all clear. And when I was reading how you wrote this book, that is absolutely the case. And I was thinking like, as I was analyzing sort of individual sentences, you know, what did she leave out? Like, what did she choose to keep in? How did she write this sentence? So tell me a little bit about the prose in the writing of this book and how you sort of bring that approach to, to everything you write. Well, for one thing, it probably went through 40 or 50 revisions easily. I mean, I knew about 14 at the beginning because I'd saved the drafts and then I stopped counting. And I mean, I have them, you know, if I want to, I can find them on my computer because after a certain point, I start numbering the drafts just so I don't lose anything. So yeah, let's say 50 drafts. And what's the difference? I mean, cutting is a great pleasure. I mean, just, it's like losing weight with no pain. I mean, it's like, you know, the word counter, I love my word counter so much because I've lost 50 words and I haven't noticed. So so part of editing is just going through and seeing if, if you absolutely need everything that's there, if, if the reader can understand what's there without that. I mean, there's a little danger, which is that that once you cut it, it stays in your mind. So it's never, that is, you may have cut something really essential that the reader can't, needs to understand, but it's, you're still thinking it. So you have to go back and fix it. And, and then clarity, as you said, it's the most important thing in every line asking yourself, just on the simplest level, is anyone else but me going to understand what this means? I mean, that's what I tell my students. I mean, I teach at uh, one class at Bard College, and it's a literature class, but but my students have to write a weekly 300-word paper. And, and it's very easy to teach them to write that way because, you know, it's not like we're waiting till the end and they hand me a 15-page disaster. But anyway, <laughs> I mean, but often I just say to them, what do you mean? You know, because they feel that they have to translate it into this language in which papers are written or whatever, you know, blah, blah, blah. And and as soon as they say, this is what I mean, it becomes, they just, then I say, well, why don't you write that? So, And I think that on some level, that process goes on all the way up and down people who have writing experience or no writing experience or, or veterans or beginners. I mean, that 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 need to say, will someone understand this? Interesting. And you have written an entire book teaching people how to read as if you were a writer, like what you can get from books in order to write 
more efficiently, more, you know, you know how to analyze a, a text. And I remember before I started this whole podcast thing, I was just, just a huge reader. You know, I just love to read for fun, but I wasn't taking books apart. And I remember sitting like right here with this one author, Charles Duhigg, I went to college with. And he was like, well, yeah, the first thing I do is, you know, figure it out. I flip through it and I do this and I go through the sections. I do this, then I read it again. Then I unpack that. And I was like, you do what? <laughs> like, well, I don't do that. So tell me about your approach and why this is important. Well, I do it. I do it in a much more general, I mean, I do it line by line. And what, and I, and again, that's how I teach. I mean, we just go through it line by line and say, say, okay, what kind of information are we getting here? What's underneath the subtext? What's, what does the writer, again, not feel necessary to tell us? What is, what are we getting without being told? And, and just to look at each word, each line, each punctuation mark, really, to, to see what effect it has on the reader. And, and also, I think one of the things you're doing when you're writing is that you know, when you're reading as a writer is that you know how many alternate choices and how many possibilities have been discarded to produce what's on the page so you can in, intuit back to for example what would be the really bad way of writing this thing that's so good that I'm reading and that it's not that hard to figure out it's very easy to figure out so so and it and it helps you because you you it helps you realize why the good choice rather than the bad choice might have been made. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plushcare. Plushcare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Interesting. Well, let's go back to Simon in The Vixen and how he approaches his job in publishing and the slush pile. And he's questioning why some things are getting approved and some things are getting rejected and, you know, hiding things sort of under the bed that he wants to read and, and all of that. There is so much subjectivity in what gets accepted and what doesn't get accepted. What can we take away sort of from the publishing world, particularly people who perhaps are trying to get published or things like that from his, the era that he was publishing in. I mean, this kind of reminded me of Joanna Rakoff's book about the letters from J.D. Salinger and how that person at literary agency had to like read through all the letters, but there, you know, this sort of time frame and 
how do you make sense of the submissions and who should really be the the person deciding what gets published? I don't know. This is sort of a bigger question, but. Well, <laughs> in listing the books that he turns down or that have been turned down, I, I made sure to find books, as I said, that would never get published anywhere at, at any time. I mean, you just look at the title and you go, I don't think so. So there's that. But, but also, I think the most important thing to come out of any conversation like this is, is that the last thing that the writer wants to think about is could get, could this get published or who's going to get published this or how is how is my audience existent or non-existent going to greet this because it's the quickest way to stop yourself and not only that it's the it's the best way to deform what you're writing into some way that has finally nothing to do with you, but has only to do with some imagined readership that you might not have or might not ever have. I mean, believe me, if I was thinking that way, at the very beginning, I would not, I mean, if I'd said to myself, who do I think is going to publish and read a comic novel about the Rosenberg execution? (laughs) That would have been it. I was like, no, absolutely no, I'm not going there. But I knew, but there was something in me that that for whatever reason had to do it, just had to write that book. So, so again, I think that that's more important. The question of what is it you feel that you have to do is much more important than the question is, will anyone ever like this? Maybe yeah. they won't. Maybe they will. You can't tell. I mean, if you like it, someone's going to like it. Maybe not everybody. <laughs> that's what you hope, Zibby. That's what really what you hope. At least one other person out there. <laughs> well, I, you know, I have to say, I feel that I've been incredibly fortunate because because I was really worried for all sorts of reasons before this book came out because of what it is because it is a comic novel because of the subject matter and and I was really shocked by the good reviews to put it just simply written by people who seemed to get what I was doing who seemed to understand what I was doing and didn't who seemed not to be horrified by it so that was a real that was a I felt just a blessing and and really extraordinary and heartening to me because you know you just never know well, I mean, I feel like you did a lot of the things that you're supposed to do to make a great novel. I mean, you have a character we're all kind of rooting for and yet kind of laugh at and, you know, you know, the sort of underdog-ish type guy and you just like want to see him succeed and you wrote it well and it has all this intrigue. And, you know, I I didn't, I mean, I know a little bit about, the, I mean, I this is embarrassing to admit what I admit, what I knew and didn't know about the Rosenbergs. And I don't know, it's like a little history is thrown in there. So you, you learn and I don't know. It transports like a good novel should. Thank you so much. <laughs> You're so welcome. <laughs> Wait, t- tell me how can like how did you get started in this industry to begin with? When did you know you were a writer? When did you start writing? And how did it I all was get my, to you know my first novel came out in 1973, I think 74. I was very young. I was very very young, and, and actually, my first novel was published by Athenaeum, which was pretty much exactly like the publishing company in the novel. I mean, so much so that I worked out or I tried to remember back to the layout of the office. Oh, wow. And I just tracked my way around the layout of the office. And 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 Pat Knopf of the Knopf Publishing family was the head of Athenaeum. And he, he had the office that I gave to Warren in my novel. So, you know, decor, British hunting club, gentlemen's hunting yeah. club. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't remember if he actually had pictures of hunting dogs on the wall, but 
that's kind of how I remember it. And it started simply, I mean, it started in a way that would, I think, be more rare now, which was that I had taken a few writing classes in at college. And then I guess a year, two years after I graduated, I gave it to a professor of mine, Monroe Engel, who'd been my writing teacher, and he sent it to his editor at Athenaeum. And he said, I, I'm going to publish this. I mean, you know, because this was before publishing got so corporate. And this was before you had to bring novels to marketing strategies and tell, explain what the demographic readership was, et cetera, et cetera. And, and my editor, Harry Ford, who was a, a wonderful kind of legendary editor, published a lot of poets. He published a lot of poets of that generation. I mean, W.S. Merwin and Mark Strand and Don Justice. So, so you published a lot of poets and sales potential was not the first thing you're thinking of, I think. So he, he really got it. And then it kind of went along from there. So I was, again, lucky and, and lucky to have started off at a time, I think, very different from, from the atmosphere we're in now. So I recently started my own publishing company. I don't know if you know, it's called Zivi Books and I launched it in September. And so, you know, this is my sort of office. It is not, there are no hunting prints, you know, this is in, nice you know, looking. Next, to, next to my daughter's room basically, but I do have like this little team and we are, it's all remote now with today's world, right? We, our slush pile comes in electronically and we review it. And, you know, it, it, it's so funny to see what has changed, but I'm so interested in sort of where you, where that started, because a lot of things in publishing today have evolved, not necessarily for the better. It's just the way it's happened, right? Like, how do you go back to taking some of that personal touch of publishing in today's super, super crowded market? So I'm interested in your character, but also your experience, <laughs> you know, and being in the industry for so long. Well, I think, you know, I think one of the great things that's happening is that so many of the smaller presses are coming back and, and succeeding because, because large corporate culture has never been a great friend of art. I mean, yes, they fund it, et cetera, but not us in particular. So I'm, I'm very glad to see that becoming less of a deciding factor about what, so what do you, what kind of books do you publish? Libby? We are publishing fiction Libby. and memoirs. Yeah, it's okay. it's okay. Nobody gets my name right. It's fine. <laughs> I should just change it to Libby because everybody calls me Libby. We're publishing fiction and memoir, 12 books a year, starting in January, 2023. Sort of telling oh, it like it is. Exciting. How yeah. exciting! Yeah, great. One it's book great. a month. I'm so excited about it. We're getting amazing submissions. We've acquired, I think, ten books at this point, and yeah, it's fun. It's really fun. But I'm trying to do everything a little bit differently because I want to do it the way I want to do it. I haven't worked in publishing, and I want to do it like from an author and reader centered model. So anyway, I don't want to detract from my conversation about yearbooks, but I'm always looking for information and you know ways to do things better and make. I don't know. The books are going to be great. It's just this marketing, you know, it's just so hard to break through anywhere. I mean, nobody's even like watching TV. I, it's just so hard. I literally said to my child the other day, he's like 14. I was like, okay, if I was going to even take an ad somewhere where like, I want everybody to see it, where would it be? And she's like, what? <laughs> well, you know, I got my son, my, one of my sons, my younger son is a music producer and I got him to do a video for the Vixen, which is out there. It's on YouTube and so forth, which was so brilliant. I mean, it blew me away and it got put up on Instagram and something. And, you know, I don't know if it sold any books, but it made me so happy <laughs> a, that it was out there and B, that I could say to my grown kid, hey, make me, a you know, it probably took him like 10 minutes or something, but it's fantastic. So <laughs> I recommend looking for it. Yes. Okay. So the answer is hire your son to make. Hire your kids. For yes, for sure. 
for all of our books. Uh, Good. (laughs) That answers that. Yeah, that answers that. So you mentioned you had been you'd come back to this book over and over again through the years. Are there other books that have been sort of gnawing away at you, or you have some of that, some of it written and some of it not, or things that you know are on your wish list to do? Yeah, I mean, I have I, I have a couple of things, and and they're all just so larval, you know that I that I can't. I mean, there's I I keep starting the first piece of memoir I've ever, you know, not counting kids, you know, articles about what to feed your kids for dinner. I'm a memoir about something that happened to me in the seventies. And I'm, I've been thinking about that. And then there's fictional subjects that just keep floating around, but don't exactly crystallize. So, you know, I mean, I'm interested in, I'm interested in those people in the 19th century that took pictures of ghosts, you know, those spirit photographers. So I've been thinking about that as well, but, but we'll see. Interesting. And what about your own reading? Like, what do you like to read? And what are you? What are some of your favorites? Or what are you reading now? I'm reading Joy Williams's new novel. It's really Harrow. It's fantastic. I'm reading. Well, it depends what hour of the day you ask me. I mean, in the middle of the night, I like to read just really, you know, like P.D. James, because I can read the I can read mystery thrillers and forget who did it. So I'm always coming in fresh. <laughs> So, you know, insomniac reading, but also because I'm teaching and it's a strange course, it's called Sympathy for the Devil. And it's about it's about how writers create sympathy for apparently unsympathetic characters. So this week we're doing High Wind in Jamaica by Richard Hughes. And the week before last, we did this extraordinary book called Into That Darkness by Gita Sereni. It's nonfiction. It's a book-length interview with the commandant of Treblinka, which is, you know, and I said, okay, you know, let's just see if there's anyone who's beyond sympathy. Let's just see, let's just push it as far as we can to see. So, so naturally he came to mind. So it was rough. And I felt sort of badly about putting my students through that, but (laughs) whatever. There is all this debate about how you feel about a book with an unlikable. Oh, you know, it's maddening. If maddening, I mean, maddening, you don't, so I was reading, actually, there's a New York Review Books, just published uh, an Elizabeth Taylor novel, Mrs. Palfrey at the Claremont, I think. And it starts with, there's a great introduction by Michael Hoffman. And he says that, that the word, word relatable means that people are being narcissistic even when they're reading. And, and it reminds him, I can't remember what the source, but some young woman saying, I don't really like reading books because I'm not in them. <laughs> and I think, that, I, th- I think that there's some of that going on with relatability, a word I've asked my students not to use because I keep saying to them, it's not about you. That's the point. It's not about you. You know about you. You don't have to see yourself. Hmm. You can see something about yourself that you never knew was there or that you recognize. But, you know, I'm not Anna Karenina, but there are things about everyone I know and people in general that I see whenever I reread that novel. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's so many, when you think about how many different parts of yourself there are, of course, you're going to find little it's and bits and pieces of them everywhere. Although I did just for Hanukkah, give my kids books that say like their names on the cover. You know, you can like personalize books now from sites like Wonderbly and Pen Wizard or whatever. And so it could be like, you know, so-and-so, you know, <laughs> anyway, instead of saying like a random character, I'm trying not to say my kids' names because I like to keep it private. Let's pretend their name, my name is Jane. Like Jane goes to the market or whatever. And then like this Jane's bedtime story. So then they go in and you can make the character kind of look like you. Anyway, I guess I'm raising narcissists is basically my point here. 
Well, that's different, though. I mean, I think anything you can do to get kids to read is is fair and square. I mean, you know, I'm fine with a book with arms that give kids a big hug that come out of it. And, you know, <laughs> I mean, because because the fact that we're competing with their screens, it's it really feels very, very hard. So so anything that does that and, and I keep getting reports from friends who tell me how they're children are buried in books and they can't get their children's head out of it. This is not my experience. Neither of my sons were that big a reader. And my grandchildren, it's hard. There's the water, the jury's still out, but, but except maybe for one, they don't seem to be passionate readers. It was funny. One of my, my 14 year old granddaughter took a book home from school and it was she had to read for her AP book. And I said, Oh, that book, it's horrible. And she said, there's a blurb from you on the back cover. Grandma. <laughs> So, so then I had to explain that I'd review the book and they picked the one really nice thing I'd said out of the review and put it on the cover and I had no control over that. And so, but I felt like some element of credibility had been. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. That is so funny. By the way, the section you wrote about the Jell-O box was so funny. Can I just read like that paragraph? Please, it's my favorite part of the book. Oh oh my God, it's so funny. You said, the newscaster tells us yet again how the state's case hinged on a torn box of Jell-O that served as a signal between the spies. The communist agent, Harry Gold, had half the box, Ethel's brother, the other half. Gold's handlers instructed him to say, this comes from Julius. The jagged fragments of the Jell-O box fit like jigsaw puzzle pieces. She should have stayed kosher, Mom says. Observant Jews don't eat Jell-O. Cloven hoof, smooth hoof, the wrong hoof, I forget what. Some rabbi ruled that Jell-O is kosher, says Dad. Probably the Jell-O people found a rabbi they could pay off. Was Ethel kosher, I ask? Who cares? There was no torn Jell-O box, my father says, except in someone's head. Yeah, there <laughs> oh, was no you, torn Jell-O box. Then you, then you, then you, you kept talking, you, you kept writing about it, and you said, the strawberry Jell-O is in Roy Cohn's head. My mother curses in Yiddish. I say, did they specify strawberry? Is this a joke to you, Simon? <laughs> Anyway. Yeah, Roy Cohn's head. Roy Co- and Roy Cohn is just the evil Zelig that just keeps reappearing in this story. You know, he was the prosecutor in the in the Rosenberg case, and then Donald Trump's mentor, and and McCarthy's boy. So he was he was around. Wasn't just there just the- some? Wasn't there just a documentary or something about him? I feel like there was. No, yeah, well, actually, the woman who made it. There have been actually there were two documentaries about him that came out within the first few months, and one of the women who made what seems to me the better one is the granddaughter of the Rosenbergs, and uh, Ivy Mirapol. Oh. So she made that documentary, and then she made another one called, what's it called? Witness to an Execution? Heir to an Ex- I can't remember, but it's wonderful. And she, I watched it a million times writing the book. She, so it's a, and it's a documentary about her family and the case and, and so on and so on. Oh, wow. Okay. And thank thanks, you Christine. Great to meet you. Thank you, Zibi. Okay. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.